Well, I'm sure you've seen the yard signs. Uh, when I was living in Portland, we saw these, these signs everywhere we walked, kind of in our neighborhood. I've seen them less here in Kansas City, but I still see them. Uh, these yard signs say, in this house, we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. And kindness in everything. Well, whatever you think about each of those ideas, I think the most important uh, of those statements is that one towards the end. Love is love. You know, yes, there are all kinds of debates going on in America about science and immigration, rights. But when it comes to love, you know, that's such a basic idea that we don't even need to define it. Love is love. Everybody knows what love is. Love is supreme also, right? Kindness, you know, just another word for love. Kindness in everything. You know, in in putting that, that last conclusion on that sign, the point of that person is that, that their sort of political ideas, their positions are backed by love. You know, they have the moral high ground. And of course, that yard sign became popular for those kind of on the more progressive side of politics. And I imagine a, a more conservative person walking by that yard sign and seeing that, and immediately their guard is up. Uh, they, they have very different views on various issues, and now they are being called, by implication, unloving, right? And, and that, that conservative person, in their mind, they scoff and they think, that, that person doesn't know what love is. You're believing in things that are false, you know, those are harmful ideas. My position is way more loving than yours. Now, ironically, these two parties both agree that love is supreme, that love really matters. And yet in that moment, there's often very little love happening between these two parties, right? You know, my, my point this morning is not to get into any of those debates, thank goodness. No, my goal this morning is to talk about love. You know, we spend our lives talking about a thousand other issues, uh, about policies, about topics. We've become experts on a thousand different things. We've accomplished grand things with our lives. But how are we doing when it comes to that most fundamental aspect of our human existence? Love. The one thing that we all believe matters the most behind all of your your positions, your expertise, your accomplishments. Are you a loving person? So we come to 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. Feel free to turn there. Uh, It's on page 959 in the Pew Bible, if you're going to use that. You know, if you've grown up in church, this is one of the most well-known passages of the Bible. Because here, God gives us a description of love. Uh, You might have heard this passage read on a beautiful wedding day. Uh, You might have seen it kind of printed on a a motivational poster or, or stitched on a pillow from Hobby Lobby. 
But in fact, this chapter is one of the harshest rebukes in all of Scripture. Now, as it turns out, Paul is not giving the Corinthians a poem to decorate their homes with. No, he is laying into them. Because even as they claim to be Christians, their lives show that they don't even know what love is. And friends, he is also laying into us. Right, so, so look with me here at 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Well, you'll remember from a couple months ago, the context of this chapter. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, we found ourselves embroiled in church controversy. All right, some people were so prizing their spiritual gifts that they were looking down on others and ready to tear apart the unity of the church. So Paul now is getting to the heart of that conflict and showing how in all of these fights, really what's at the heart of it is that they've forgotten how to love. They've become worldly and sinful in their thinking. And, and he's basically saying three things to them. This is my outline here. Three points. Number one, without love, you are nothing. Without love, you are nothing. Number one. Number two, you don't even know what love is. You don't even know what love is. And number three, love is going to last longer than all the stuff you care about. Love is going to last longer than all the stuff that you care about. So those are my three points. I pray that as you hear God's word this morning, that, that, that we would be confronted also. And that we would consider what it would take to pursue a life of love. 
So first, without love, you, you're nothing. How important is love? Well, we see that in verses 1 through 3. Here, Paul is going to give examples of the things that the Corinthians really admired, that they were tempted to fight about. So, even if you had the gift of tongues, right, you could soar on the heights of your spiritual ecstasy, right? You could speak with a tongue of angels, but you didn't have love. Then Paul says here, your, your speaking is a meaningless noise before God. The, the term here, a clanging cymbal, could even refer to kind of an instrument used in pagan worship. So Paul might be very well saying here that all of your spiritual gifts without love are indistinguishable from idolatry. No, no matter how passionate your prayers, no matter how emotional your worship Without love, it's just all annoying, grating noise before God. But he pushes it further. Uh, he talks about now the, the greatest theologian in the world who, who has all of his theological categories in the world, who understands how all the prophecies are going to play out. I mean, he's got charts upon charts that tell you how it all works out. He can understand and teach God's word to the amazement of thousands. Or imagine someone who has incredible faith to perform the greatest miracles. He can raise the dead, move the mountains, bring about revival. But these people, they don't have love. And Paul says, they are nothing. You know, he doesn't just say that their work is nothing, but he says they are nothing. That, that when God evaluates them, they're of no account. He, he has no regard for them. Without love, no matter how perfect your theology is, no matter how mountain-moving your faith is, without love, God, God is not impressed. What, one last one. Here's someone that we should all be impressed with, right? Surely this is the way to commend yourself to God. Imagine someone who, who, who gives away all that he has who spends the rest of his life serving the poor, bringing the gospel to the lost. You know, or imagine someone who, who resists persecution, who stands up for what they believe in, boldly gives their lives to be burned at the stake. You know, surely those actions intrinsically count for something, right? Well, they count for something if there's love. But... But without love, Paul says, I gain nothing. Can you imagine? You, you give away all that you have. You lay down your life for what you believe in. You think that heaven awaits you on the other side. And you show up on judgment day. And there's nothing there. You've gained nothing. You know, friends, I think there's something here for every single one of us. You know, whatever your ambitions are. Uh, whatever you think impresses God, whatever your, your life goals are, put them here on this list and realize that even if you accomplish all those things, if you have not love, you are nothing. You gain nothing, Paul says. You know, what do we learn here? We should all be just kind of devastated by this, the seriousness of this problem that we face. 
namely our failure to love, to love God, to love others. We are more motivated by duty, by rewards, by the praise of men, by our own pride, by all kinds of things except by love. No, when it comes to our lack of love, it isn't just some, some sort of minor issue of our lives. No, it is, it is a massive fail. You spend all of your life chasing all sorts of goals only to arrive at the very end and find out that those goals counted for nothing. And that the one thing that mattered most, you missed. Our lack of love is the biggest sign that there is something deeply wrong with us. No, we are those who are made in the image of God who is love. And yet we have been so warped and twisted by our sin that now our lives are marked by, by selfishness, by hatred of others. What we need to take away from this passage is that we should care a lot less about all the, all the stuff that we're doing, even all the good things that we're doing. Don't get me wrong. You should keep keep on doing good things. But what we should realize is that even as we do these good things, we should be examining our hearts and we should be convicted, right? Where is my heart in all these things that I'm doing? In all of my right ideas and and good actions and religious duties, is there any love in my heart? Love for those who disagree with me. Love who, for those who aren't like me. Love for those around me who, who offer me no earthly advantage. What this means is that you, you can never be so great and so accomplished so as to feel that you've arrived, that, that you have mastered the challenge of love. Even if you're like a hero of the faith, a world-class preacher, you, know, you are always going to be humbled by the challenge that love presents to our fallen hearts. Friends, love is what ultimately matters. This is what we heard Jesus say, right? Uh, the, the problem that we face in life is not that we don't do enough great things for God, that we're not brilliant or gifted or, or heroic enough. No, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the first and greatest commandments. So friends, consider God is not asking you to give away all your money, to give your body to be burned in order to be accepted by God. You know, actually, if that's what he was asking for, it's actually pretty doable. No, but he's asking, do you love me? Do you love others? You love your neighbor as yourself. And before any of us answer that question too quickly, we need to know what love is. Point number two, you don't even know what love is. You don't even know what love is. Yeah, that's what Paul is saying here in, verse, in verses 4 through 7. Let me read that again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
Now, this is not, I think, an exhaustive description that Paul is giving us here. But this is what Christians who are struggling with pride and disunity, this is what we need to hear. And this is really a a useful kind of heart check uh, for every single one of us here. You know, take time this week to, to reflect, to walk through each of these qualities one by one. How am I doing in each of these areas in my own life? Uh, even better, find a friend to talk through these things with you. So first of all, love is patient. How are you doing in patiently bearing hurts against you, right? Without complaining, without grumbling in your heart. Uh, it's striking that Paul begins here because that's where love begins in a fallen world. People are annoying. (laughs) Love requires patience. People get in your way. Uh, Impatience perpetuates the cycle of sin, right? But love breaks that cycle. How, How are you impatiently bearing with others and their faults and their weaknesses. Not only showing patience, but kindness. How, how are you in proactively being kind to others? Now, love cheerfully and freely seeks to do good to others. Now, this isn't just like, you know, leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. No, this is intentionally looking for ways to do good to those around you. Um, And not only kind of practical acts of kindness, but even uh, kind of emotional or or encouraging acts of kindness. Speaking kind words, befriending one another. Love also does not envy. You know, envy is the, the inability to rejoice with those who rejoice. Are you glad when other people receive good things? Even things that you want but you don't have? Do you pray for others to be blessed in ways that you haven't been blessed? You know, often when we struggle with envy, we we find it so much easier just to cut them out of our lives. That way we don't have to deal with those emotions. Now, that's not love. Love repents of envy and learns to find joy in other people's happiness. And also, love does not boast. You know, amazingly, we find all kinds of ways to feel proud. Uh, to take pride in ourselves, to look down on others. You don't have to be famous or rich or popular. No, we're much more creative than that. Uh, How do you treat those who you feel aren't as good as you are, right? How do you treat those whose careers, whose manners, whose kids are not as put together as as you are? What about verse 5? not insisting on your own way, not being self-seeking. You know, so often in so much of what we do, there are self-seeking motives, aren't there? Uh, We we are really after our own way rather than the good of others. You know, we're glad to be faithful church members, but we don't mind when other people compliment us for all the good that we're doing. You know, husbands, of course, we want to be loving towards our wives, but we expect them to be loving back towards us, right? When we clear that dishwasher, man, we hope that they will gladly make dinner for us. I don't know. I don't know what you expect. That's what I expect, obviously. Um, You know, I I think of us when we were kids, being self-seeking means you throw a tantrum, right? You, 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 You want your own way. 
As adults, we're a lot better than that. We're just more, much more skillful in getting our way. We know how to manipulate other people with our words, with our actions, to get our way. That's, that's not love. That's not love. And, and when we don't get what we want, we can be irritable. We see here. We get angry. How, how are you in being slow to anger? You know, how, how often are you angry when really nothing wrong was done? You just didn't get your way. How often are you angry when, when really a, it was a small thing that was done, a small offense? You know, I think what's telling is that so often our anger is about our will being crossed rather than God's will being crossed. And when was the last time you got angry because God was sinned against? So often our anger is a sign of our own selfishness. And love is not resentful. As, as other translations say, it keeps no record of wrongs. So how are you in your forgiveness? You know, forgiveness is not simply just bearing the mistake and moving on, bearing the offense. No, forgiveness is, is recognizing actually there is real offense done, real injury done against me. And yet at the same time, rather than using that against somebody else, I'm going to choose to bear that wrong. I'm going to choose to, to take that offense upon myself so that the other person will not have to suffer. I will forgive instead of getting revenge. No, love is not resentful. Love forgives. I wonder how many of you here are holding on to bitterness in your hearts and not forgiving. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You know, we live in an age where people think that love means letting others do whatever they want, leaving them alone. Whatever they want to do, whatever feels right to them, love is letting them do it. Even if it means destroying themselves and embracing falsehood. Paul makes it clear, no, love rejoices with the truth. Love and truth go together. And love means being willing to confront wrongdoing even when it's costly, right? Does your love involve confronting others? You know, doing the impolite thing by talking to people about the wrong in their lives, speaking the truth even when it's hard for them to hear. For so many of us, love is nothing more than just being polite and, and flattering one another. No, that, that, that kind of love actually cares more about yourself than doing good to others. True love refuses to delight in evil, but rejoices and speaks the truth. And finally, perhaps the most challenging, verse 7, love endures. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. In other words, love perseveres. If you show patience and kindness and, and all these good qualities for, for a month or for a few years or a few, or a few decades. But then you decide, ah, that's enough. I'm done with this person. Yeah, that, that was not genuine love. Whatever it was, that was not genuine love. No, if, if you just forgive for the first and second and tenth time, but not the eleventh time. Yeah, that's not love. Love endures through every circumstance. Love is generous in its trust. It hopes for the best even after repeated disappointments. 
and it endures to the end. You know, this, this is such a convicting passage to preach on, even as I prepare this. I'm terrible at this. I am not a loving person. And, and as, as we look at this list, we know that we have not done this. We have failed to live in this way. Who of us have perfectly loved those who have hurt us, who have wronged us? Who of us have all, always been patient and kind and resisted envy or pride? Who of us willingly and cheerfully love those who we don't think deserve our love? Has anyone ever done that in the history of human humanity? Only one, only one has ever done that. And the, that is the God of love. We saw this earlier in the service. God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, God loves us. God doesn't love us because we are good. No, God loves us because he is good. And his love was displayed in the most astonishing way possible. He gave his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his son into this world to take on our humanity and to bear on himself the judgment that our unlovingness, our hatred deserved. God did not rejoice in our wrongdoing, but he condemned our sin by placing it on his son in our place and pouring out his wrath on him. Jesus in love bore our sins upon himself and he died in our place. And then he rose from the dead in victory over our sin. And in Jesus Christ, God shows us what love looks like. We see in Christ his infinite patience, his lavish kindness. We see that Christ's love was not proud. No, he, he, he left his heavenly throne. He humbled himself to take the position of a servant. He laid down his life for us. And even as we continue to falter day by day, God's love for us bears all of our sins. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. God's love never ends. Friends, are you having difficulty loving somebody? Use that as an opportunity to thank God that his love is not like yours. Thank God that his love in Christ is so patient with you that this love can never be taken away, that, that it even today is kind to you. Realize that you never deserved this love. He, he didn't love you because he saw something good in you and decided to love that. No, but in his overflowing love, he has decided to pour out that love on you. And even though you never deserved it, realize that now in the gospel, you have been loved by God in this way. And if you believe that, if you've received that, then allow that love to change you, to do something in you. 
You know, the, the ethic of the New Testament is never muster up this kind of love for the people around you by your own willpower. No, that's impossible. No, again and again, what we see in the New Testament is this. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, this love here that we are commanded to have, first and foremost, realize that you have been loved in this way. As, as high as the bar is here, realize that God has met that bar. He has surpassed that bar of love for you. And as beloved children, imitate God in that love. Oh, friend, uh, in order to make any headway in this, first and foremost, realize that you have been loved by God. And so, for example, you're seeking to love a friend and you're struggling with envy. You're struggling with envy. Someone has what you don't have and you can't stand them for it. They got the promotion that you wanted. They have the family that you wanted and you don't. How does the gospel free you from that kind of envy? Oh, friend, in those situations, know that you have a God who loves you. You have a God who gives you not merely gifts. No, he gives you himself. And if he has given you his son, will he withhold anything from you that will be for your ultimate and eternal joy? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Oh, friends, it is the love of God that frees us from all envy. So that now, knowing that we are rich in God's love, we can begin to rejoice with those who rejoice. For every single one of these qualities of love, wherever you find yourself struggling, meditate on the gospel, reflect on the gospel, and, and, and learn to love even those who are difficult to love. Because in the gospel, there are resources of love for you. And even as you struggle in that, you know, even as you confess that, yeah, I'm struggling to love this person, know that God's love for you will never fail. Know that God is patient with you and bears with you in that struggle. This is why love in the local church is such a, such a gift and such a big deal. Remember, the context of this letter is not a storybook wedding where, you know, the, the groom and the bride are looking their best on, the, on their best behavior. No, the context here is messy relationships in the local church. Relationships with people who struggle with pride and selfishness, who come from different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds. People who have nothing in common with each other except Jesus. And yet, they have Jesus in common. So, it's in the context of these regular, difficult, face-to-face, Christ-centered relationships where love can exist. So we begin to learn to love those who are different from us right here in the local church. Uh, these people that we share nothing in common with except for Christ. So, so view each other as 
your, your, your training ground, your gym, right? To begin to get strong in your muscles to love one another. Uh, here are real flesh and blood people that God is calling you to begin to love in this way. You're going to have a hard time. But this is why we have the gospel. And this gospel makes this kind of love possible, even right here. If you're not a Christian here this morning, please understand that before God calls you to be a loving person, to show love to others, God first calls you to receive his love. Being a Christian is first and foremost not about you doing something for God. No, it is about letting God love you and do for you what you could never do for yourself. You have lived a life of rebellion and sin against God, and you are justly deserving of his wrath. And instead, God has been patient with you. God has been kind to you by giving you his son to take your judgment upon himself so that you might be forgiven so that you might go free. And having conquered your sin and death, Jesus rose from the dead. And now he offers himself to you in a relationship of love. Oh, friends, stop running away from God. If you will just repent of your sin and receive that love in Christ today, then you can have God's love. And if you're not sure what that means, please come talk to me after the service or any number of these people around you would love to help you understand further what that means. We love because God first loved us. Because as God has loved us, that transforms us. So that even in this life, we can begin to love truly as God loves. Not perfectly, and yet truly. Until the day when we see God's love in full. And that's my final point. Point number three. God's love or love will last longer than all the stuff that we care about. You know, that's the final point that Paul makes here. Look at verses 8 through 13. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You know, all of us <clears throat> want to make sure that we are investing our resources in things that are going to last and things that are going to pay off. You know, you, you read the story of the person who puts all of their life savings into a scam, into some sort of investment that tanks, and you feel bad for them, right? You know, some of you have, have lived through things like that, and, and it's heartbreaking. It's tough. But it's one thing to lose your money. What about losing your life, the one life that you've been given? You know, that's what Paul wants us to understand here. These Corinthians were obsessing over 
prophecy and tongues and gifts of knowledge. These are not bad things. No, these are good things given as gifts by Christ for the church. But as helpful and edifying as they may be, they are passing away. When will these things pass away? Well, it will be when the perfect appears. Some scholars have debated what that means. Paul seems to be pretty clear that perfection is about the arrival of a person. Right, you see that? Of seeing him face to face. He says there in verse 12. Um, you know, what a wonderful picture that is. Seeing God face to face. After having lived through a pandemic where now we can finally begin to see each other's faces. No longer have to wear masks. Imagine the day when we see God face to face. No more masks. Not through a mirror dimly, but in person, face to face. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You know, so much of what we fight about, as, as needed and as precious as they are in this life, they're not going to be needed any longer when Christ returns and we see him face to face. You know, think about the soldier who is away from home. Zoom is a great gift, isn't it? He can stay in touch with his family. He can talk with them. But can you imagine him going home, finally being with his family, and then like going into his room, closing the door and Zooming with his family? How stupid would that be? No, at that point, the, 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 the tool is not the point. No, at that point, the tool is done with. He gets to be with his family face to face. The day will come when all that divides us will no longer matter. All, all, these, all these things that we prize and prioritize, these are gifts that will pass away because Christ is here. And our reality will be changed. We will see God face to face. In eternity, we won't be arguing about theological systems anymore. Because by then, we will know God fully, even as we are fully known. We won't need charismatic gifts anymore because, because we will all worship in his presence. We won't need to organize small groups and Sunday schools and mission trips because sin will have been defeated forever. Again, don't get me wrong. These are necessary and, and important gifts for now. We live in this age before the second coming of Christ where all these things are fitting activities. But friends, don't live, don't fight as if this life is all that there is, right? Give up those childish ways. Live in the maturity of an eternal perspective. Look forward, look forward to the day when we won't need these crutches anymore and, and when we will see God face to face and enter into our true destiny as the children of God. Because on that day, only one thing will remain, and that is love. I think that's what verse 13 is saying. Faith, hope, and love, this wonderful summary of the Christian life. We live by faith in what Christ has done for us. We live in the hope of the return of Christ. Our lives are transformed by the love of God for, for him and for one another. You know, that's what the Christian life is for now. But the day is coming when our faith will become sight, when all that we hope for will come, will come true, and all that will remain is love. All that will remain is a world of love.
One theologian writes this. The Father gives all of his glory, his love, his blessings, his very self, exclusively to his Son. And then he sends his Son to share with us his fullness. The Father, then, is not about sprinkling blessings from afar. His salvation is not about being kept at a distance, merely pitied and forgiven by our Creator. No, instead, He pours all His blessings out on His Son and then sends Him that we might share His glorious fullness. The Father so loves that He desires to catch us up into that loving fellowship that he enjoys with the Son. And that means I can know God as he truly is, as Father. In fact, I can know the Father as my Father. Oh, friends, this is what eternity holds for us. The love that God the Father has for his Son will be in us. And we will be forever united to Christ. And we we will be brought into that eternal fellowship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And in tasting God's amazing love forever, we ourselves will also love one another. Right? Because that's what this passage is about. Paul is talking about love in the context of a local church between the believers. In heaven... We will love one another perfectly, right? Even as God loves us. You know, I, I, the, the, the song that we just sang, that we will be saved to sin no more. I think we can say that even more positively, that we will be saved to love truly, right? As, as we have been loved. Finally, on that day, we will know what it is to love. On that day, there will be No hint of impatience in our love for one another because there won't be any sin at all. Any differences that we have will only increase our love for one another. There will be perfect kindness between us and every glorified saint in the world. Every person will be an infinite source of joy and praise for God. There will be no hint of envy or jealousy because every joy that another person shares only increases your own joy. There will be no temptation to boast in your pride because we will know that all that we have is from God and we will love one another with perfect humility. There will be no more anger or frustration in our dealings with each other because love will never go unrequited. There will always be perfectly mutual, perfectly reciprocated love between us. Any wrongs, any offenses, any injuries that we have experienced in this life, they will have been perfectly and fully forgiven and forgotten. No mention of them will ever come up again. And on that day, we will be freed from all of our our laziness and our sluggishness and our dullness and our passivity and our awkwardness and our shyness and our foolishness and our selfishness from every other evil that keeps us from loving one another as we ought. Never again will congregations break up. Never again will loved ones depart. But forever we will know that we have the perfect enjoyment of God's infinite love and of one another's love 
forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is where we are headed. Yes, our love today is so weak. We, we have to work for it. We have to train for it. And God has begun that work in us. Oh, but don't lose sight of this day. Don't lose sight of that day when we will see God face to face. And this will be the case. No, let that reality mature you in how you love one another today. Oh, friends, may the mark of love begin in our lives today and in this church from now into all eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. And even before I lead us in prayer, take a moment now to reflect on what you've heard. And then in a moment, I'll close this. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider what this text is saying, Lord, we are convicted. Oh, Lord, we confess that we have not loved others with this kind of love, that we are motivated by a thousand other things besides love. Oh, Lord, we stand condemned. And yet at the same time, Lord, we are astonished that you tell us that you love us. And when you tell us that you loved us, you love us, you, you have proven it with the gift of your son. And Lord, you affirm again and again that this is what your love for us is like, that it is patient and kind and forgiving and enduring. Oh, Lord, we, we have, our hearts are so cold and so twisted that we have a hard time even believing this and receiving this. Oh, but Lord, help us. Strengthen us to grasp the height and breadth and length and depth of your love for us in Christ. Lord, that we would know that we are loved in this way. And Lord, that we would know it so deeply that it would change us, that it would begin to change how we live, how we view others, how we respond to those who have hurt us. Oh God, we pray that this church would be an outpost of this kind of love. That when people come, that they would see a warmth between us that would look utterly foreign to them. God, help us to move beyond the sort of politeness and, 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 and distant kind of flattery, but Lord, that we would genuinely know how to love one another. Oh God, do this by your spirit. And Lord, help us to do this as we look forward to the day when we see you face to face. Oh God, fill our hearts with that hope, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.